Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Let's go to Acts chapter 21, and we're going to go through the next section, verses 15 through 26 this evening, and we find Paul and the mission team, they finally make it to the church in Jerusalem. Uh, They're welcomed there by the pastor and church leadership. Paul gives a detailed report of everything uh, that has been happening on his three missionary journeys. And uh, while there's great celebration over what God is doing among the Gentiles, uh, the Apostle James, that's Jesus' half-brother, the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, he informs Paul of some false, uh, slanderous, remarks that have been going around about Paul and what Paul has been teaching. Uh, It's not an insignificant situation. The church in Jerusalem's huge in numbers in the thousands. Uh, So there's more than a few people who have been believing and spreading this incorrect information. You know, when I was growing up, my mom used to say some unique phrases, didn't she, Krista? Uh, She's kind of known for that. I don't know what you call them, maybe idioms. People say in the upper Midwest, I suppose you all have them down here too. Uh, one of those things she'd said all the time was uh, whether she, I don't know, she's surprised or um, frustrated or maybe uh, thought something was funny, she'd say, oh, for Pete's sake. Now, I know, uh, we, I know a Pete now, um, but I just thought that was oddly confusing back then because we didn't know anybody named Pete. Um, <laughs> James, James asks Paul to do something here in this passage to clearly show that these rumors about him are completely false. Paul doesn't have to do it, uh, what James is requesting, but we learn that Paul does it. He lays down his rights. Uh, He lays down his preferences to do what James asks him to do, all for the gospel's sake. All for the gospel's sake. Let's read uh, in Acts chapter 21. We're going to begin in verse 15. Let me get over there. And then we will go through verse 26. Acts 21, beginning verse 15. It says, And after those days we took up our carriages, and we went to Jerusalem. And there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea, and brought with them one Nason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, He declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads 
and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, he entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until then an offering should be offered for every one of them. Let's pray. God, we come to your word tonight, and we've got a, a great example here uh, in Paul's life of, of him uh, making the gospel primary, preeminent, uh, willing to lay down his rights, his, uh, his opinions, his preferences, uh, God, also that there would be no obstacle uh, in his ministry to people, no obstacle to his sharing the gospel. In doing so, he's just following Jesus, who did the very same thing, sacrificed uh, his preferences, his rights, made himself of no reputation, uh, made himself in the, in the form of a man and um, was obedient even to the death of the cross. And Lord, I pray that uh, through understanding and applying your word tonight, we would follow Jesus, we would follow Paul by making sure the gospel's preeminent, that we would do anything we need to do for the gospel's sake, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So in, in verses 15 to 20, we learn of the arrival of Paul at Jerusalem uh, verse 15 tells us that after those days, meaning after Paul and the mission team had spent uh, some time at Philip's house up in Caesarea, after Paul was warned, like we learned last Sunday, after Paul was warned what would happen to him in Jerusalem from the prophet Agabus, it says that they took up their carriages and went to Jerusalem. That's the King James Version way of saying they packed up their luggage and they headed to Jerusalem. And verse 16 lets us know that some of the Christians in Caesarea, they accompanied them as they made their way to the church in Jerusalem. It's about 65 miles from Caesarea to Philip, from Philip's house in Caesarea to Jerusalem. So, uh, I mean, definitely a two-day journey, even if they had horses, if that's what uh, carriages is intending there. And uh, so it seems that they stopped at the home of a guy named Nason, who was originally from Cyprus, probably lived somewhere in between. Verse 16 describes him as an old disciple. So that's not referring to his age. I uh, praise the Lord that we've got many old disciples here. Um, but what that description means in the original language is that he's one of the first converts to Christianity. He's one of the first followers of Jesus after the church was formed way back in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And by best estimates, Paul is heading uh, here to Jerusalem around A.D. 57. Uh, so that's 25 years or so after the beginning of the book of Acts. And even then, some Christians are already being regarded as an early disciple like Nason here. And I praise God that we have early disciples here at Dublin First Baptist too. People who have walked with the Lord. They've been saved a very long time. Many uh, of our old disciples are early disciples as well. And we're blessed to have them here as faithful brothers and sisters in Christ serving with us. Uh, it's in verses 17 through 20 that the team finally gets to the church in Jerusalem. And what was their reception like? What does it say there? It says, the brethren received us gladly. And the next day, there's a, a meeting. Paul and his mission teammates, they meet with James and the other leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And verse 19 tells us that Paul declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Now, declared particularly in the Greek, uh, it means that um, 
Paul told them in detail, literally recounting every single thing that God had been doing, been working on these mission trips through them. And if you look at verse 20, you'll see the response of the church leaders in Jerusalem uh, to what Paul says in this report. It says they glorified the Lord, praising God for what he had done through this mission team that they in some way partnered with. I mean, they were sent out to Antioch, but this is definitely a partnering church, supporting them, praying for them. And we do that here too, don't we? I'm so glad we have mission nights on first Wednesdays. Uh, keep our, our heart for where the heart of Jesus Christ is. And to celebrate those things, uh, it, Teddy's on a mission trip right now uh, with, with Center Road and some other Blade and Baptist Association churches out to West Virginia doing backyard Bible clubs and, and ministering there in Mallory. We might not all be able to go all the time, but we can't all be active in mission efforts, can't we? By praying, by encouraging, by funding. Um, we can all be celebrating what God does through the mission efforts here, uh, giving God thanks for what he's doing through all of us together as we make the name of Jesus treasured here, there, and everywhere. Now, in verse 20, the celebration quickly turns to concern in the rest of verse 20. James communicates to Paul how many thousands of Jews there are in this church which believe. Um, so this is a big, big church congregation. It's the first church. And uh, James tells them that they have a reputation for being zealous for the law. I don't know if you sense a change in tone here, but there definitely uh, is one. And I don't want you to immediately jump to a, a wrong or negative mindset regarding that last statement in, in verse 20. There's nothing wrong. There's absolutely everything right with being zealous of the law. Uh, we, we're living in a, a day and age where even in the church among professing Christians, there are a few people who are zealous, who are passionate, who, who are excited uh, about uh, God's word and by, about living in obedience to it. And that's all that's being described here. Um, they're, they're not viewing the law as a means of salvation, that's clear. Uh, not even some legalistic view that, oh, we're more right with God than, than you are because of what we do or what we don't do. But please understand this, and Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 9, uh, you and I being saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, that does not make the law, it does not make obeying God's word negligible, it makes it doable. Because we're saved, we can do what God says. We've been saved, yes, from the penalty of sin. <laughs> we have a home in heaven, we're not headed where we were headed, but we've also been saved from the power of sin in our lives. In a way where we couldn't before we came to Jesus Christ, we have the capability to say no to sin and yes to God. Our salvation, God's grace, does not make the law, obeying God's word, negligible. It makes it doable. And James goes on, beginning in verse 21 then, to describe this attack against Paul. Uh, he informs that a prevalent, prevalent rumor uh, it has been circulating about Paul and what he's been doing what he's been teaching on mission. Look at it there in verse 21. It says, they are informed of thee. Every, a good part of this congregation is informed of thee that you teach all the Jews, which are among the Gentiles, first of all, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. Now, it doesn't say here where this false report began, like with whom, but we can deduce that easy enough. This is no misunderstanding here. This is a straight-out lie. Where do lies come from? Yeah, the father of lies. That's what Scripture tells us. 
And it doesn't really matter where it started. The issue here is it had spread. It had spread to a sizable portion of the congregation in Jerusalem. And we know this is a blatantly false attack against Paul and his ministry. Let's dissect this accusation that we have in verse 21. Uh, we've been steadily studying the book of Acts for months now on Sunday mornings. Had Paul ever taught anywhere on his three mission trips that the Jewish people who live in any of the cities where Paul planted churches, had he ever taught them that they should forsake the law of Moses? No. Had he ever taught them that they did not have to obey God's word? Of course not. Unless you count him preaching the gospel that clearly declares that salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that the law or our obedience to God's commands, completely insufficient to save us from our sins. But the law of Moses never taught that it could. It never taught that it was supposed to. Let's go to the second accusation we have there in verse 21. Had Paul ever taught anywhere that Jewish people must not circumcise their sons? Of course not. Yeah, unless you count, uh, for instance, Paul's epistle to the Galatians, one of the books that had already been written uh, at this time period, where Paul taught that circumcision is completely insufficient to save us from our sins. Doesn't matter if you are, doesn't matter if you aren't, it bears absolutely no weight on whether or not you are saved regardless of your ethnic heritage. That's what Paul taught because that's what scripture teaches. Paul never said you can't circumcise your sons if you're Jewish or, or if you're Gentile for that matter. But he did say that it's inconsequential in regard to your salvation there's one more accusation there in verse 21 against Paul in this attack. Had Paul ever taught that the Jewish people who lived in any of the places where, where Paul planted churches, had he ever taught that they should not walk after their customs? Meaning the ceremonial law. Like uh, keeping this feast day or that feast day. Now we know that's a lie because Paul himself kept certain Jewish ceremonial customs. And Paul was a Jew. He was not embarrassed of his ethnicity. He was thankful to God for it. It's not that far back. We could go back to chapter 18 in Acts, in verses 18 to 21, where we learn of Paul taking a Nazarite vow as a form of dedication, consecration, as a form of worship to the Lord. He never taught that any Christian needed to do this. In regard to their ethnic heritage, whether they're Jew or Gentile, he just, for some reason, he felt a need to do that for himself. In worship to the Lord, so we certainly know that he never prohibited other Jewish Christians from celebrating their ethnic heritage that way. If we would read what Paul wrote in Romans 14, 4 through 6, another book of the Bible already written by this time period, we can recognize that Paul never taught that Jewish people must forsake the ceremonial aspects of the law, like esteeming one day more important than this one or that one. In that passage, Paul says, if you do, good on you. Just don't judge those who don't. If you don't, Good on you. Just don't judge those who do. When it came to the, the various Jewish feasts uh, on the calendar, I mean, Paul himself celebrated them. We've seen that over and over. He's like, I got to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. I got to. No, he just taught that doing so was not necessary for salvation. So that's the problem. That's the attack that James makes Paul aware of here. And in verse 22, James tells Paul, that, that, hey, it's, it's one that needs to be clearly refuted, Paul. 
uh, because there's a large part of this Jewish congregation that has been misled, and they're going to want to know where you stand on these issues. It's in verses 23 to 26. We see the, the accession by Paul. Um, James suggests a plan for Paul to refute in word and in deed, this controversy, this attack against Paul, that these lies were. Uh, there were four Jewish Christians uh, in the church at Jerusalem. They had taken a vow, possibly a, a Nazarite vow, with the meaning talking about shaving the head, uh, a vow of consecration to the Lord, just worship of the Lord. And verse 24, James suggests that Paul joined them in the purification rites, along with these four men, and that he even pay for their expenses. See, at the end of the Nazarite vow, you would have to uh, produce an offering, take it to the temple. A sacrificial offering would have to be uh, made, and it was costly. And that's where we get the, and the King James says, be at charges with them. Now, that would be a pretty clear statement, wouldn't it? In word and deed, uh, of any uh, support for Jewish Christians who felt they needed to retain, they needed to celebrate the ceremonial part of the law as worship, as a celebration of God's goodness to them. Now, does Paul have to do this? No, he doesn't have to. I mean, Paul could have just responded by, by saying, James, this whole thing is ridiculous. You know it as well as I do. James isn't saying he believes any of this. Paul could have just said, man, I've never taught that. Tell these people to prove one single instance where, where I have. Paul could have simply just disregarded it. He could have said, you're just a bunch of legalists. I've given my report. I'll see you. God bless you. Paul could have said that. Or Paul could have harped on and on about how our identity is in Jesus Christ now. And that they're all forgetting that. But Paul doesn't do any of that, does he? He doesn't. Instead, we witness the accession by Paul. Accession means something added. Paul adds something here. He's not adding anything to the gospel. He's just adding something for him to do in order to clear up the slander against his reputation and his ministry. He's just adding something for himself to do for the sake of the gospel so that there'd be no obstacle to his ministry with these Christians. It's an addition that's really a subtraction when you think about it. Paul's willing to lay down his rights. He's not compromising on doctrine here. He's not uh, capitulating on fundamental essential truth. That would be wrong. He's just sacrificing his own time, uh, money in this situation. He's willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel among these ethnically Jewish Christians. James makes it clear in verse 25 that what he's suggesting, it does not apply to any Gentile Christians who might be involved. The Jerusalem Council's position, their statement of faith that they decided on way earlier in the book of Acts, it has not changed here. But they asked Paul to do this, and we find out in verse 26 that Paul agrees. He says, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. Uh, verse 26 says that Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, he entered the temple until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now, this is a sticky point for a lot of theologians. They get upset about what Paul did here because of the sacrificial offering thing mentioned. Uh, by what went on here, they think Paul did compromise on the final and perfect sacrifice that Jesus Christ was and is. But we need to remember that not every offering uh, in the Jewish sacrificial system, not everyone was an offering of atonement, right? There were other kinds. Um, there were offerings uh, of thanksgiving. 
their free will offerings or offerings of dedication, that would be the kind that would be given at the completion of a Nazarite vow, probably what's happening here. As we wrap this up, I want you to go one other place. Can you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9? And we're going to look at a few verses there because we've got a testimony from Paul, another epistle that was probably written by this time period, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we'll look at verses 19 to 23 because uh, we get this window into Paul's heart and why he decided to do what he did here. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. It says, For though I be free from all men, are you free in Christ? Yeah, you're free in Christ. Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant in the King James. Doulos, the Greek word is doulos. Your, your Bible might say slave, probably a better translation. I've made myself a slave unto all. Why? why? Why would you do that? That I might gain, that I might win the more. Unto the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain, that I might win the Jews to Jesus Christ. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Verse 21, to them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under law to Christ. There's that. Salvation doesn't make the law negligible. It makes it doable. I'm still under the law to Jesus Christ. I now have the ability to obey God's commands. That I might gain them that are without law. Verse 22, to the weak became I as weak, so that I might gain the weak, that I might win them to Christ. I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Why does he do it? What does verse 23 says? say? I do it for the gospel's sake. That I might be partaker thereof with you. I do it for the gospel's sake. Well, that's some flexibility, isn't it? I mean, think about, try to put yourself in that situation. Would you be willing to do what he's describing here in all those different ways? I mean, that, that, that's a, a love of Jesus level of, of sacrifice. A willingness to... to um, Add things to our life. Uh, a willingness to remove different things from our life. Things that are less than eternally important with one singular motivation in mind, with one singular goal to strive for. What is it? Glorifying, Glorifying God, sharing the gospel. What, what can motivate us to be this selfless and committed? I do it for the gospel's sake. Verse 23. The gospel is the most important thing to Paul. That I might be partaker thereof with you for the sake of the gospel. Now, if I were to ask you if the gospel was important to you, I'm talking to a Wednesday night crowd. I know what your answer is going to be. Of course it is. I mean, it is the most important thing to me. It's how I'm saved, right? It's my confident assurance that I have new life in Christ right now. And I'm going to have eternal life with the Lord forever and in eternity. So I know what your answer would be, but let me put it this way. Is the gospel important enough to you that you feel compelled to share it with those who don't know Jesus yet? Is that important to you? When an opportunity comes along, is the gospel so important to you that you feel compelled to share the gospel with your family who doesn't know Jesus? with your neighbors who might not know Jesus, with that coworker, who you know definitely does not know Jesus, with a lady at checkout line, at food line, with a guy at the gas station. 
Is the gospel that important to you? Because it was to Paul. Is the gospel important enough to you that you'd be willing to add something or remove something, even sacrificially, even if it came at some cost to you, even if it was something, I don't have to do this. Is it so important to you that you would do that all for the opportunity to share the gospel and so that it might not be negatively impacted? Because it was to Paul. It was that important to him. I'm going to put it this way. There's, there's actually like two two struggles that most of us have. Is there some freedom? <laughs> like Paul talks about in verse 19, though I be free from all men, all things. Is there some freedom? You definitely have it in Jesus Christ because of the gospel. But is that freedom, is that liberty you have in Christ, is it more dear to you than the gospel being proclaimed or you having the opportunity to share it with someone? And we can go all the way, swing the pendulum to the other way. Is there some personal conviction you have? Well, this is just how I was raised. Or there's some stand on an issue that you have made. I'm not talking about truth and not truth here. I'm talking about personal conviction, maybe some gray area, but you're like, this is where I, this is my position. Is it more dear to you than the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed? Is it more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ being received? Or can we be like Paul here? And can we live like this? I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, God might use me to bring some to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can we commit together tonight and live out this truth tomorrow until God calls us home or Jesus returns for us? Can we commit to say, yeah, we'll do that for the sake of the gospel because it's that important to us. It's the most important thing to us. Tommy. Praise team, would you come up?